Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 10, From Servant to Empress, The Tale of Catherine I. In August 1702, the town of Marienburg and its ramshackle island fortress were under siege. The Swedish soldiers, enduring the days-long cannonade, numbered around 2,000. The Russians camped outside were 10,000 strong. The outcome was a foregone conclusion. The Swedish field army was too far away to provide relief. After an obstinate 12 days of resisting, the Swedes finally surrendered. A very minor battle in the decades-long Great Northern War, 1700 to 1721. No one would remember the siege of Marienburg, today Aluxnia in northern Latvia, but for one very important detail. As with so many battles in this gruelling conflict, the Russians were rough with the captured civilian population. Dragged out from the town was a black-haired, rather plump woman, no more than 20 years of age. Her fate was to be presented to the Russian commander, Field Marshal Boris Sheremetyev, as a trophy of his conquest. Then she was called Marta, serving girl to the local Lutheran pastor. 23 years later, she was known as something very different. Her Imperial Majesty, Catherine I, Empress of all Russia, the ruler of the lands stretching from the Baltic Sea to the Pacific Ocean. It is hard to imagine a more dramatic change in fortune. When I began this podcast, I made a promise that we would be talking about the normal people who made up the empire, the peasants, merchants, soldiers, nobles and priests, and not the imperial family, the biographies of whom are often well known. For Catherine I, however, I am willing to make an exception, and for two reasons. First, as our opening anecdote makes clear, she did in fact start life as an ordinary person, just one more piece of flotsam caught up in the whirling storm of war. Second, this Saturday, the 21st of August, 2021, marks the 298th anniversary of the city in which I live, Yekaterinburg. The town was named in honour of Catherine, Yekaterina in Russian. So I thought this episode, the first after a long break, would be my own very small contribution to these celebrations. But now, back to our tale. Catherine's early life was and remains an enigma. It is not even certain that she herself knew her origins clearly. Once she started making her mark at the imperial court, numerous rumours flew back and forth, reported diligently by foreign ambassadors and soldiers in Russian service. One story places her birth in Dorpat, the Estonian city currently known as Tartu. Another has her family fleeing war from somewhere in Poland, to the more peaceful Baltic coasts. Some suggested she was the bastard child of a Swedish nobleman and a peasant girl, dumped in Marienburg due to either parental disgrace or parental demise. Out of all of this confusion, only some things can be said with certainty. She was born in the early 1860s, tradition dictates the year to be 1684. She ended up as the servant of a Lutheran pastor of Marienburg in time for the Russian invasion of 1702, and her name was probably Marta Skavronskaya. Remaining as Field Marshal Sheremetyev's war prize for several months 
was almost certainly not a pleasant experience for the young martyr, but it might have offered some small comforts. As the war raged across the Baltic, violence, famine and plague were rife. At least in Sheremetev's quarters, she was fed and somewhat safe. Then the marshal was transferred to command the Russian forces currently in Poland. He left Marta in the care of his successor, Alexander Minshikov. Like Marta herself, Minshikov came from humble and relatively unknown beginnings, although he and others later claimed he was the son of some impoverished nobles from what is today Belarus. Historians have as yet found little proof to substantiate the boast. Living in Moscow in the early 1690s, in rather straitened circumstances, he came to the attention of the young Tsar, Peter I, later known as Peter the Great. Forming a strong friendship together, Peter catapulted Menshikov to the very heights of power. Throughout Peter's three and a half decades of rule, no one wielded the same amount of influence as Menshikov. He was the kind of creature that Peter liked. He had no independent base for support beyond Peter himself, and as such was unquestioningly loyal to the Tsar. For a few months more, Marta remained for Menshikov what she had been for Sheremetev, a pretty trophy and distracting pleasure toy. But soon Menshikov was visited by the Tsar himself, as ever leading his armies in person. Here then was Marta and Peter's first sexual encounter, a brief moment of entertainment for a ruler who loved to booze, party and womanize almost as much as he liked fighting. A second visit a few weeks later, however, led Peter to permanently remove Marta from Menshikov, turning her into one of his many mistresses. Over the next few years, Marta accompanied the Tsar on his endless peregrinations between his armies and the brand new capital of St. Petersburg. No waif, her sturdy constitution allowed her to bear with ease the sometimes torturous conditions of being an army wife. It was probably this that endeared her to Peter above and beyond his other love interests. She soon became a viable solution to one of Peter's core concerns, the quagmire of his family life. Peter had been married before. In 1689, at the behest of his mother, he was wedded to Yevdoxia Lopuhina, the daughter of minor Moscow nobles. However, a decade of unhappy married life persuaded Peter to divorce Yevdoxia, an act that was achieved by forcing her to become a nun, thus rendering the marriage null and void. From Yevdoxia, Peter had a single living son, the heir to the throne, Alexei. However, Alexei was everything his father was not. While Peter was rough and tumble, Alexei was studious. While Peter was a radical reformer, Alexei was a conservative, a lover of the old Muscovite traditions, being eradicated by his father with newfangled European innovations. The relationship between father and son was curdling even in the early 1700s, especially since opponents of Peter's reforms were forming around Alexei and his mother, who was living a rather luxurious life in her monastic prison. She even had a lover, when Peter found out the unfortunate lover was executed, publicly impaled on a stake. People who irritated Peter rarely lived for very long. In this light, Marta had many advantages. She could produce more heirs, thereby giving Peter a choice in who to leave the empire to, other than the detested Alexei. Indeed, Marta had already given birth three times between 1703 and 1706, although none of her children survived. 
Furthermore, she had no family or power base of her own, so marriage to her would not affect the delicate power balance between the aristocrats at Peter's court. And finally, she could offer Peter the nourishing warmth of married life. In 1706, Marta converted to Russian Orthodoxy and took the Russian baptismal name Yekaterina, Catherine. Not long after, she and Peter were secretly married, which was confirmed by a public ceremony some years later in 1712. By all accounts, their relationship indeed was cosy. In his letters, the Tsar is always affectionate towards his Katerinushka, visibly concerned about her safety and comfort. For her part, Catherine was perhaps the only person who could calm the Tsar when he flew into one of his infamous, almost psychotic fits of rage. She also offered support in dire circumstances. In 1711, despite still being involved in the massive war against Sweden, Peter marched south into what is today Moldova to confront the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Catherine accompanied him. The Russian army was badly undersupplied, especially in terms of water. Peter told the Danish ambassador that he saw how first may blood flow from the noses, eyes and ears of the soldiers. Arriving at the river Prut, the Russians were quickly encircled by a massive Turkish force. Peter was only able to get his army out in one piece by surrendering to the Turks all the possessions he had won from them over a decade previously. According to the account of one German soldier, Catherine assisted in this by providing the Turkish envoys with a very gracious and warm welcome. Of course, not everyone was happy about Peter and Catherine's nuptials. For many, Catherine was little more than a foreign and illiterate peasant girl, claims that were true on all counts. Until the very day of her death, Catherine could neither read nor write, although she spoke fluently in four languages, Russian, Swedish, German and Polish. Conservative opponents to Peter detested the match, with Bishop Stefan Jaworski publicly calling Catherine a whore during a sermon on the 13th of November 1708. Jaworski escaped severe punishment only because Peter could hardly risk fighting the Orthodox Church along with his many foreign enemies. In reality, the Emperor barely cared about such gossip and calumnies. Catherine gave him what he wanted, a hardy, affectionate campaign wife and children who could succeed him. Two imperial daughters, Anna and Elizabeth, were born in 1708 and 1709, and then, joy of joys, a son, born in 1715. At this point in her life, we have two descriptions of Catherine. One, rather sympathetic, was furnished by a foreign ambassador at Peter's court. She has a pleasant plumpness. The colour of her face is entirely white, with a natural tincture and several bright blushes. Her eyes are black and small. Her hair, of the same colour, is long and thick. Her neck and arms pretty. The expression on her face, gentle and entirely pleasant. A rather more snobby appraisal came from the Margravina Bereit in Germany. She had a vulgar visage. The colour of her face was swarthy, her waist fat. Dressing without taste, she was covered with necklaces and jewels, which jangled as she walked. Catherine was indeed a notorious Sybarite, a vice Peter happily indulged not only to make her happy, but to demonstrate to the entire world that she was indeed the wife of the Russian Tsar. 
Most accounts of her personality and capabilities emphasised her polite, pleasant passivity. No one marked her out for a keen intellect. Tragedy struck the imperial couple in 1719 when their young son died. Now the succession was in real trouble. Alexei, Peter's son from his earlier marriage, had died in prison in 1718 from wounds inflicted during torture. He suffered this fate for fleeing from his tyrannical father to Naples in 1716, causing a colossal scandal involving many of the crowned heads of Europe. The two deaths left no obvious heir. Alexei had a son, Peter, but he was unloved by the Tsar, the lines of his face recalling unpleasant memories. Of Catherine and Peter's two daughters, Anna was already married off to the Duke of Holstein in northern Germany. In 1722, Peter further muddied the waters by declaring that the only rule of succession was the decision of the current emperor. However, he declined from making any such declaration while he was alive. Nonetheless, he seemed to gradually come to the idea that Catherine herself would take the throne should he die before her. The greatest piece of evidence for this is that on the 7th of May 1724, he crowned Catherine as empress in a sumptuous ceremony. Performed at the Uspensky Cathedral in the Moscow Kremlin, the traditional site of Russian coronations, Catherine wore a train so long that it had to be carried by five ladies-in-waiting. All the bells of Moscow's many churches rang out, and thousands of soldiers fired volleys of cannon and rifle shot into the air. Inside the cathedral, before the assembled ranks of Russia's most important generals, admirals and potentates, Peter himself placed the crown on his wife's head. Catherine is supposed to have cried at this moment, although whether she did so from joy or from the sheer weight of the 1.5 kilogram crown resting precariously on her scalp is unclear. The subsequent fireworks display, one of Peter's most beloved imports from Europe, went on for two hours. This, perhaps the most joyous moment in their long marriage, was soon spoiled by that ever-present enemy of happy matrimony, infidelity. Not Peter's, of course. He continued to have many lovers after his marriage to Catherine. According to some observers, she was quite happy to listen to her husband relate the intimate details of these encounters. No, this time the sin seems to have been Catherine's. For much the previous decade, she had been accompanied everywhere by her head chamberlain, William Mons. The Monses were Dutch merchants who lived in Moscow's so-called German Quarter, the ghetto to which foreigners were confined before Peter's reign. In 1691, Peter had taken a fancy to Anna Mons, Willem's sister, thus forming one of his longest romantic relationships. The Mons family rocketed to prominence as a result, with Willem eventually becoming Anna's chamberlain and his other sister, Martiena, being married to the Russian governor of Riga. Willem was quite the adept at playing the ladies' man, as a sickly sweet letter to one of his female admirers attests. My beloved treasure, my angel, my cupid, I desire a happy meeting, but I would like to know why you did not send me your last kiss. If I learn you have been unfaithful, then I would curse that hour on which I met you. And if you want to hate me, then I will abandon life and consign myself to bitter death. And of course, as Chamberlain and favourite of Catherine, he gathered no small amount of power in his own hands, 
receiving petitions from even some of Peter's most favoured courtiers. At what point William and Catherine became lovers is unknown, as are the details of their relationship. What is certain is that Peter suddenly had William arrested on the 8th of November 1724, allegedly for bribery. Few believe this. Bribery was so endemic among Peter's potentates that it was practically an official mechanism of government. Also, when Peter personally went to interrogate Mons, he flew into one of his trademark incandescent rages. The luckless prisoner was apparently so terrified that he nearly fainted. Such anger would hardly be justified by the crime of corruption, no matter how grotesque in scale. Equally, Catherine and Peter's formerly close relationship now no longer existed. The two barely talked or looked at each other. Three weeks after his imprisonment, Mons was beheaded. Several eyewitnesses relate that Peter took Catherine to see the impaled head. One says that Peter forced his spouse to walk over to the grisly monument while he prowled behind her, malignantly glaring at her back. The fallout from the affair did not last long, simply because Peter himself was not much longer for the world. He died on the 28th of January 1725, most probably from uremia. He left behind the entangled mess of the succession. Even on his deathbed, he failed to proclaim who would sit next on the imperial throne. Court politics now took over. Alexander Menshikov, backed by several other of Peter's closest associates, quickly decided on Catherine as the most suitable candidate and forged a document in Peter's name declaring his wife sole empress. Menshikov no doubt favoured Catherine in part because of their previous relationship. After all, it was he who had introduced her to Peter. Catherine was also largely uninterested and incapable in ruling personally. Peter had never sought to train his wife to deal with ruling the empire, keeping her strictly out of politics. Furthermore, the other plausible candidate, Peter, the son of Alexei, might one day look at the edict that had led to his father's torture and death, Menshikov's signature had pride of place there. In total, Catherine ruled for just over two years, until her death on the 6th of May 1727. In reality, it was Menshikov and some favoured foreigners who really wielded power, in particular Catherine's son-in-law, the Duke of Holstein, and the unscrupulous Westphalian master of manipulation, Andrei Osterman. By the time she came to rule, Catherine's life, a peculiar mixture of arduous travel and untrammeled luxury, had taken its toll. Morbidly obese, with swollen, tumorous legs, she was stricken by illness, which was further exacerbated by an irregular sleeping schedule. Sometimes she slept throughout the entire day, waking up only at night, a particular irritant to the ambassadors and courtiers expected to attend on her. When required to sign imperial edicts, she summoned her daughter Elizabeth, since Catherine still could neither read nor write. For those not involved in the deadly games of court politics, her reign marked a welcome respite after that of her husband, whose endless wars had required massive sacrifices in terms of men and money. Catherine's death spelled doom for her former master, Menshikov. The testament he had assigned just before she shuffled off her mortal coil, named Peter, Alexei's son, 
as the new emperor, Peter II. However, she also instructed that Peter II was to marry one of Menshikov's daughters. Horrified by the prospect of Menshikov's supreme and enduring power over the teenage emperor, his opponents quickly unified and had him and his family exiled to Siberia. A wonderful painting by the 19th century artist Vasily Surikov has the aged Menshikov and his family sitting in the squalid confines of a wooden peasant hut as a blizzard howls outside, a place so very far from the magisterial palaces and majestical estates he had carefully accumulated as Peter's right-hand man. Catherine's personal rule was certainly not the brightest period of Russian history. Indeed, for historians, her succession marks the period of so-called palace revolutions, where weak rulers, dominated by influential court favourites, lovers and Germans, rose to power as a result of backroom shenanigans and the forceful intervention of guards' regiments. However, Catherine's reign was not her only legacy to Russia, for in 1741 her daughter Elizabeth seized the throne, holding it for over 20 years. Abolishing the death penalty, she also led Russia to some of its most impressive 18th century military victories. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time. Mm -hmm.